Aloha, this is Catherine Cruz, and you are back with the conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. How do we spell relief? It is being able to bid aloha to Hurricane Douglas and mahalo for sparing us. We check in on the stand down here in Honolulu. We talked to Hiro Toya, the city's emergency management director, this morning. For Hurricane Douglas, the warning was canceled as of 11 p.m. last night for Oahu, and the storm stayed about 35 miles to the north of Oahu, um, which apparently was the, the closest storm we've uh, actually ever had in, in, in recorded history. Um, the, the one closest to us before that was Hurricane Dot back in uh, 1959. So it looks like we uh, had a close call, but uh, escaped without any significant damage to Oahu. Have we been able to reassess our preparedness? What are the areas that we need to work on for the next one? Yeah, absolutely. That's what we think about uh, after every, even during events, is what can we do better the next time around? So absolutely a lot of um, lessons learned that we need to address, particularly around sheltering and uh, how can we best support the population. And we actually had a lot of uh, great positive things come out of this. We worked with uh, additional support providers of, for homeless people where we were able to provide additional staffing to the shelter. So um, that, that was a great positive but you know we do have some geographic areas that aren't as well covered and uh, we want to make sure we do the best we can to uh, have adequate shelter for for all of the island you know we saw the storm move quickly yeah, this was a uh, very fast-moving storm, and, you know, we, we do um, track the storm and start having conversations with the weather service uh, as it forms in the eastern Pacific and uh, heads towards us, but this was definitely a fast-moving storm, and uh, we have the additional complication because of COVID, so we really um, was, uh, we were really pressed uh, with, with this one in trying to prepare for the storm and to consider the mitigation for COVID at the same time. What was the feedback on the convention center? You know, we had we had some challenges in getting it going, but, uh, you know, just amazing staff from the convention center and all the partners that were involved. There's a lot of success stories there, but um, also a lot of lessons learned. So this is the first time that we used the convention center as a shelter. So definitely lots of lessons learned, and uh, we'll be regrouping with the partners to make sure we make any improvements for the future. So the, the briefing this morning really focused on the uh, the current weather updates, and of course it starts with the um, the Central Pacific Hurricane Center giving us an update on the forecast. All the warnings have been canceled. This is only the first steps. Today's briefing was really the the very first step in uh, going towards the uh, our after action process. Because the storm was more of a threat to the uh, windward and northern communities, you know, there was always the concern about the coastal communities and the flooding that we see in that area. Can you talk about that? Yeah, absolutely. You know, with hurricanes, we always talk about the triple threat, and that's the wind, rain, and surge and surf. And with the track of the storm, we had some potential for significant impacts to the windward side of Oahu. And we made the decision to publish a, uh, a map that indicated potential uh, inundation areas from storm surge. And uh, what we wanted to do was make sure we communicated clearly to that community that there is a threat here. Now, storm surge, that storm surge map that we published um, only accounts for one of the hazards. And it, with the p significant potential for rain that we had, as we get the freshwater rainfall coming down the streams and the ocean coming in at the same time, um, you create the situation where it's compound flooding and, and the impacts for that we can't really forecast. So we wanted to aggressively communicate that. And that was the reason why we published the uh, storm surge map with guidance from the Central Pacific Hurricane Center. Right now for, for the uh, Hawaiian Island, uh, the Weather Service uh, is not able to do a uh, real-time modeling for storm surge, unlike they are able to do 
for the Atlantic and the Gulf Coast. So we do have some limitations in what's available to us from the Weather Service, but they did provide us with great guidance and models that are not specific to the hurricane, but also are approximations of that hurricane based on the, the size, the forward speed, and the direction. So. We're going to continue to refine our messaging to, to the vulnerable communities. Um, the windward side, is, of course, has significant vulnerabilities because of um, Kamehameha Highway being essentially the only way in and out. And so the, the impact is that uh, we could also end up with isolated communities. So um, definitely a, a lot of issues that we need to address, uh, not only in terms of communicating with the public, but our, our preparedness for a response to that area. I found the surge map to be really helpful because I have relatives that live on that side. But what stands in the way of us getting real-time maps? From my understanding, um, National Weather Service has been working on that, but uh, storm surge modeling for islands is really challenging. I'm not uh, entirely clear on all the technical limitations, but uh, they have been working on it, and uh, we've been discussing this issue with the National Weather Service for some time now. So we're really hoping to get some uh, additional real-time forecasting uh, available to us sometime in the near future. So how long had you worked on this before you folks rolled it out? It's actually been at least a year that we've been working on the the strategies for deploying this. What's available, available right now to online is storm surge model for the Hawaiian Islands from, from the uh, National Weather Service that is essentially a composite of every possible hurricane scenario and a number of different directions accounted for in this model. So that would include a storm that's uh, all the possible tracks of storms approaching from the south, from the east, um, from the north. And so what's available right now is this composite scenario that no single storm would ever produce. And uh, it's actually a um, over-representation of the, the hazard that any single storm can present for our community. So, for instance, for Douglas, if we were to use that model, it would have shown inundation on the, uh, the south shore as well as on the west side. Um, so that would have been problematic for us. It would have been an inaccurate communication to the public. So we really have to be careful in um, how we craft this mapping product and uh, working closely with the National Weather Service. And, of course, it's really um, we got to make sure we're communicating an accurate representation of, of the model. So it's, it's also challenging for uh, an emergency management agency to issue weather products instead of the National Weather Service doing it. So there's a, a number of technical and you know, uh, policy issues related to publishing such maps. So um, really, uh, we were glad to be, have um, great guidance from the National Weather Service as well as um, technical assistance from our Department of Planning and Permitting. Their geographic information system or GIS experts were able to really produce some solid products for us. Just another tool in the toolbox. Exactly. Uh, and do they have that available for the neighbor islands too? Do you know? Uh, actually, I do not know. Um, okay. I know there was uh, some discussion of uh, the neighbor islands doing that as well, but I, I'm not sure at this point. That was Hiro Toya of the City's Emergency Management Agency. And we also checked in with Maui Mayor Mike Victorino earlier today. We always have a debriefing after a major event has occurred. And so we will be doing that probably on Wednesday or Thursday of this week uh, to give everybody time to assess, to make the necessary reports not only to FEMA but other agencies throughout the county and state. And so there's a number of things and steps we are taking at this point. But we will debrief. We will look at everything and how we can improve on it. I think things went well overall. And, uh, yes, the storm missed us, but barely. And the high surf and some of the rain, torrential rains and heavy winds that did hit the islands luckily did not cause much damage at all, to the, at least my initial reports this morning. 
but we have everyone out there today uh, assessing what happened, if there's any major damage. Uh, and so all our parks, our other recreational facilities, many of our, our land, uh, like our landfill, were closed today just for assessment purposes and reestablishing so that tomorrow everybody can go in and be safe and healthy. And, you know, I was glued to the TV for most of the day because, you know, we were watching and we worried for Mayor Kim there on the Big Island. There is always so much uncertainty with these storms. Absolutely. And I'm very grateful for that coverage because, again, no offense to anyone, usually it's centric to Oahu and everything's Oahu. And some these kinds of storms, let's be honest, they're statewide. And any one island or any one county can be devastated and the other counties be spared. This time we're all spared. So I'm very, very grateful. And I pray each and every time these um, events start coming through that the good Lord will bless us and, and keep us safe and keep us from having major property damage. It hasn't happened every time, but in most cases they have blessed us. And so, And the people. I got to admit, our people were really excellent in the sense of adhering to the warnings. When the warning sign went off at 8.30, pretty much our roads became almost deserted. Very, very few cars on the road going anywhere. People really did hunker down. And I'm so thankful for that because that also helped our emergency responders and others move about that needed to move equipment or needed to get somewhere for another emergency, yeah? So it was really a wonderful experience, something I'd rather not see again, to be perfectly honest. <laughs> I would prefer not getting ready for another hurricane, but knowing that it will happen in the future, we are much better off. And again, we, like I said, we have debriefings and we'll make some changes and make some um, corrections so that we will do a better job if and when the next time comes along. And I don't know what your staffing was like at any of your shelters. There is a concern just because of the COVID times and, and you know, a, a lot of our volunteers are, are more in the senior set. We had a similar challenge, I think all the counties had, that opened up shelters. You know, Big Island didn't have to, so thank God for that. But we had to, and we opened ours 7 p.m. on Saturday night. I actually opened it up a little bit earlier because the tracking and, and some of the initial reports were saying we were going to start catching some of the outer bands and some of the heavy winds early uh, Sunday morning. And I didn't want people in the dark trying to leave their properties to go get shelter, yeah? So I decided to open it up at 7. And uh, we, we, we had enough social distancing. We had a few quarantine people, that uh, self-quarantine people that came. We had them in an isolated area. We had a plan, and the plan worked out. Now, when it came to volunteers, yeah, we, they were sparse. There weren't as many as we've had in the past. We augmented that with some of our county employees, and I want to thank them for putting themselves out and helping us in this area. Um, it costed us some overtime, but you know what? It was worth it for the people's safety and well-being. It's worth it. And so, uh, really, we had no real super shortages, but we could have used some more help. And I, we put the call out, and again, I know Honolulu and uh, you folks have put the call out for volunteers throughout the state, especially some younger volunteers, if we can find some younger volunteers. Yeah, <laughs> on a whole for that. Uh, you know, I have to say, the speed at which this storm was barreling toward us, I have been in storms where the speed has been in the 
single digits and the typhoons have just sat and just pummeled the island, you know, where I grew up. And that's scary. So at first I thought, oh gosh, I've got plenty of time. And then it was like, no, I don't. This this storm is moving faster than, than I thought. It averaged something, I think, like 13 miles to 14 miles an hour throughout the course. I mean, sometimes it went up to 16, 18 miles an hour. Sometimes I think it dropped down to like 12, 11 miles per hour. But it was a fast-moving storm, which may have contributed to it pushing north quicker than, than maybe uh, like a lane and Azel and all those that kind of sat when they they came close to land. They hit landfall, but they sat in their area, and so that's why torrential rains and some heavy winds caused damage on the Big Island and, and other islands, yeah, Oahu in, in particular. So this was a fast-moving storm. We were very happy in that respect. But you're right. We didn't have a lot of time to think about things and get ready. I mean, it's like it's going to hit maybe between here and here, and it's Friday afternoon, people were scrambling, even here in Maui County. But it worked out well, and we're thankful again. And, and I hope no hurricane comes for the rest of the season. But you and I both know it'll probably we'll probably have another alert or two. And it is just the way we are in these day and age of not only COVID-19 but other uh, uh, major storm events. Right, but that's okay. We'll we'll learn from this and. Uh, be more prepared the next time another one absolutely, comes around. Absolutely, absolutely. And I just want, again, to thank the Hawaii Broadcasting System, all uh, the public broadcasting system, I should say, and all of the news media, print, uh, radio, television, uh, social media, especially social media that puts out accurate information. The real challenge I have with social media is a lot of times they put inaccurate or people put opinions and not facts, and that throws others off, yeah? Yeah. And so that makes it very difficult. And you being from Guam know about hurricanes and cyclones and typhoons and all of these. You know, here in Maui, we've been blessed. You know, uh, we haven't had a major hit since Iniki, but that doesn't mean it's not coming soon. So everyone stay tuned, stay prepared, and thank the good Lord for everything we get, the blessings we have. We have a beautiful sunrise this morning, the sun shining. You know, never thought there was a storm passing yesterday, if you look this morning. We're so blessed. We are so blessed. To all the people of the state of Hawaii, mahalo for your efforts. To those in Maui County, keep up the good work, and let's work on COVID-19. We were doing so well in the last uh, two weeks. We've gotten uh, a little crazy, and our numbers have jumped exponentially, and uh, we're working on it. We're working on it. That was Maui Mayor Micah Carino assessing our response to Hurricane Douglas. And now it's time to hear from the BBC with the latest pandemic news. This is the Coronavirus Global Update on Monday the 27th of July. Hello, I'm Oliver Conway. Tens of thousands of tourists in Vietnam are ordered to leave a coastal city after the first COVID-19 cases in months. The World Health Organization warns that long-term travel bans are not a sustainable way of combating the virus. There are calls for a two-week lockdown in Lebanon and a pet cat is the first animal in the UK to be confirmed to have the disease. Vietnam has evacuated 80,000 local tourists from the coastal city of Da Nang after the country recorded its first coronavirus infections for three months. Hundreds of flights have been laid on to take people home. Vietnam has been widely praised for its success in containing the disease with no deaths and only about 400 cases so far. Professor Guy Thwaites of Oxford University's Clinical Research Unit is in Vietnam. The city itself has just been locked down, actually. Um, there's very restricted travel both in and out. And anyone who's been in Da Nang recently, so, for example, people who've come back down to Ho Chi Minh City or up to Hanoi, 
uh, have all been asked to self-isolate uh, for the next 14 days. So they're taking it very seriously, as you'd expect, because they have uh, a tremendous record to protect, if you like. The World Health Organization says border closures and travel restrictions are not sustainable as a long-term response to the pandemic. Dr Mike Ryan says it's impossible to keep borders closed indefinitely. It is tough on people right now because as countries, like everybody else in the world, move through this period of continued uncertainty, it is difficult to get those travel measures absolutely right. You can open up and then have to shut down and then open up and have to shut down. And some people say, well, better to stay shut because that's more consistent. But it's also not making any progress. Hong Kong has announced some of its toughest control measures yet following a sustained spike in new cases. From Wednesday, dining in restaurants will be banned, face masks must be worn in all public places and only two people from different households will be allowed to meet. Kenya has extended its nighttime curfew for a further month following a surge in infections there. Bars will remain closed indefinitely and the sale of alcohol in restaurants has been banned. The health authorities in Lebanon have recommended a two-week lockdown to combat a sharp rise in cases. The official leading Lebanon's treatment of the disease has warned that a major change is needed in the public's attitude and conduct. Martin Patience is in Beirut. According to Lebanon's health ministry, if the current rate of admissions is maintained, the country will run out of beds to treat patients with COVID-19 by the middle of next month. Lebanon's fared relatively well compared to other countries in dealing with the coronavirus, with around 50 deaths recorded so far. But the reopening of Beirut airport last month has contributed to a rise in cases. And with the country now in a state of economic collapse, officials fear that early gains could start unravelling. South Korea has denied that a defector who made a daring return to North Korea this month had symptoms of COVID-19 after the authorities in Pyongyang said he was the first suspected case in the north. The South Korean military believes the 24-year-old man crawled through a drain pipe and swam across the Han River to evade detection by guards on the heavily fortified border. His arrival in the north prompted the government there to announce a lockdown in the border city of Quezong. The head of the regional government of Catalonia in northeast Spain has called for the Roman Catholic Church to be penalised over a mass that breached local Covid restrictions. The service was held in the Sagrada Familia Basilica in Barcelona on Sunday to commemorate victims of the pandemic. Danny Eberhard reports. Several hundred people attended the mass with strict social distancing in force. The Catholic Church in Barcelona says it was originally organised with the Catalan government's approval. The church contests the recent order limiting services to 10 people. It says it reopened the Sagrada Familia to tourists this weekend under pressure from the region's authorities, which want to aid the economy. The church questions how come it can let in hundreds of tourists during the day but be told the same space can't hold similar numbers for an evening mass. The price of gold has reached an all-time high in financial markets. It was trading at more than $1,940 an ounce. The price has been rising throughout the pandemic as many investors see gold as a safe haven in times of uncertainty. Finally, a pet cat in the UK has tested positive for COVID-19, making it the first confirmed case in an animal here. It's thought the cat caught the virus from its owner. Experts say there's no need for alarm as there is no evidence that pets can spread the disease to people. There have been a small number of confirmed cases in animals elsewhere in the world. And that's the latest coronavirus global update.
Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Hoku's Restaurant, featuring Chef Jonathan Mizukami, bringing new direction from culinary experiences across the globe, including the French Laundry in Napa Valley. Reservations at kahalaresort.com. Coronavirus patients are told to stay home and self-quarantine, monitor their symptoms, and go to the emergency room if they get worse. But what can be done if they're admitted to the hospital? What treatments are helping patients recover? I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Join me today on The Body Show. We'll talk with local doctors who are on the front lines taking care of patients with coronavirus infections. That's today at 6.30 on The Body Show. This is The Conversation on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Now it's Backyard Quiz Time. In today's Backyard Quiz, one for you TV trivia fans. Well, this morning we're thinking about a television series shot in Hawaii that was inspired by real-life events. During the 1962 Cuban Missile Crisis, a Soviet sub reportedly came very close to firing a nuclear missile when it lost communications with Moscow. That story was adapted to become the fictional story of the USS Colorado, a nuclear sub that receives an order to fire a missile, gets damaged in combat, and ends up stranded on a remote tropical island. That is where the Hawaii setting comes in. Now, the stars of the movie were Andre Brower, who plays the sub's captain, and Scott Speedman, his second-in-command. Despite its very contemporary themes, the show ran for only a few episodes in 2012. We're looking for its name, and if you know, call us 941-3689 or 877-941-3689. The first one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag that tells people you got it right. Support for the back. Quiz comes from Locations, whose Realtors and staff support HPR's commitment to sharing stories of Hawaii. Updated property listings, including virtual tours and a mobile app, at locationshawaii.com. Department of Planning and Permitting has been working to set up a program to allow new permits for bed and breakfast vacation rentals. It's the first time since the late 80s. Under a city timetable, it would be preparing around this time to submit the new rules for public review. But the COVID-19 concerns has one city council member calling for the postponement until next year. Here's council member Ron Menor, head of the city's zoning and planning committee. Given the strong concerns of many of our constituents that reopening tourism will allow infected travelers, including those who reside in mainland hotspots, experiencing huge surges in coronavirus cases, 
to come into our islands and spread the virus throughout our communities. And this would be especially concerning if visitors are allowed to stay in approximately 1,700 new bed and breakfast accommodations where they would be circulating in residential neighborhoods throughout our island. Moreover, you know, it just doesn't seem to make sense to allow more short-term rentals to operate when the city continues to have a difficult time enforcing the law with respect to the thousands of short-term rentals that continue to operate illegally, as well as the visitors who continue to arrive in Hawaii and uh, violate and flout the mandatory self-quarantine while staying in vacation rentals. You know, in addition, under the mayor's emergency orders, vacation rentals, whether legal or otherwise, are classified as non-essential businesses that are not permitted to operate. So again, it just doesn't make sense to allow for the registration of additional bed and breakfast vacation rentals under these circumstances. And finally, you know, the economic collapse that we are now experiencing has underscored our over-dependence on tourism and the need to diversify our economy. It's also made us more aware of the negative effects of mass tourism on our culture, environment, and our quality of life. And so in this regard, it would be beneficial, I think, to delay the issuance of registrations of new bed and breakfast accommodations and take the time to assess the future course and direction of our tourism market. You know, whether we should strive to attract higher spending tourists with fewer visitor arrivals, or return to the past and continue to open our doors to millions of visitors each year, many of whom were staying in vacation rentals. So for all these reasons, I, I felt that at the very least that my bill and my proposal deserve further consideration and discussion. It sounds like the uh, Caldwell administration you know, doesn't oppose it. DPP says that you're a little bit behind on rolling out the regulations anyway. So I think maybe they would welcome that pause. It's my understanding that the, the Caldwell administration is is supportive of what we're proposing, and I think it's it's reasonable. You know, we did talk to Angela Keene with the Quarantine Breakers Group, and she had mentioned in a, a recent arrest that were made that there was a loophole where somebody booked a 30-day vacation rental and then broke it and then basically just moved in the same neighborhood to another vacation rental. Uh, and you know, I guess technically they're not supposed to be operating. That's correct. And again, we have... A lot of many of these vacation rentals that continue to operate illegally. So again, it just doesn't seem to make sense to me to allow for the issuance of 1,700 additional bed and breakfast accommodations when the city administration, the Department of Planning and Permitting, is having a tough enough job just trying to rein in the existing. Uh, vacation rentals that are continue to operate illegally. And I understand that there is a group that is asking that legal vacation rentals be allowed to operate. I would not support that, not at the present time. Again, given the fact that um, many of our constituents would be very concerned about allowing more visitors to circulate in residential neighborhoods, given the continuing spread of the uh, coronavirus uh, here in Hawaii. And second, you know, it's just, I, I just have a strong belief and, and, and a sense that uh, many of our constituents just could not support that at this point in time. When will folks get a chance to weigh in on this? Well, the full council will be taking up the measure again at our August health meeting, meeting which I think is going to be held on August 2. And so during that full council meeting, the public would have, have the additional opportunity to uh, provide testimony on the measure. And assuming that the full council approves the bill for further consideration, the bill would then be referred back to my committee. And if that occurs, I am planning on, on scheduling another zoning committee meeting on the measure uh, in August. And at that point, during that committee hearing, the public would have an additional opportunity to provide comments. And if my committee decides to move the measure out for final vote by the full council, then the bill would come up for final vote during our September council meeting. So during all of those uh, council and, and committee meetings, the public will have more than ample opportunity to provide remarks and comments 
regarding this measure. And we have been reading about how uh, VRBO and I think Airbnb have approached uh, some of the other counties to work out something. Are you aware of any other developments here on Oahu with those companies? No, I'm not aware. I, I, I don't believe that the representatives of either hosting platform uh, has uh, contacted our city officials. I'm, I'm not aware of that sort of dialogue happening here. Uh, on this island. But, you know, we have urged hosting platforms, Airbnb and Acadia, to work with the city and to be more transparent and to disclose the kind of information that we would need so, so that we can do a more effective job, the city can do a more effective job of identifying the areas where the communities where these illegal uh, vacation rentals are, are operating. But um, I, I haven't been satisfied with the responses and uh, that we've gotten from the hosting platforms, and I don't think they've been very cooperative with the city and county of Honolulu thus far. Well, I guess we'll have to watch to see what happens to the other counties. It's just all really interesting. Just you know, you listen to the the, the loopholes and, and and how people are skirting just the quarantine. They'll book a vacation rental here or even a hotel, and then say they're going to be there and abide by the quarantine, and then they break it and then fly to the neighbor islands. Enforcement becomes even more difficult, I believe, when the visitors who arrive in Hawaii and who aren't planning on, on abiding with the quarantine are staying in vacation rentals that are spread out throughout the island as opposed to, you know, going to uh, and staying at hotel accommodations and resort zones where government officials can more easily identify their, their whereabouts. So that's the other reason why I, at this point in time, would not support opening up more of these short-term rentals because then it becomes even more difficult to enforce the quarantine where these visitors who are going to be violating the quarantine are staying throughout the island in, in different residential communities. You know, we'll just have to wait and see in regards to uh, the progress that the measure will make. Although I'm, I'm, I'm confident that I uh, will have the support of my colleagues to uh, obtain final passage and approval mm-hmm. of, of this bill. That was Honolulu City Council member Ron Menor talking about Bill 50. He introduced the measure which delays the rollout of the city's bed and breakfast program until next year. The bill will be heard on the August 2nd agenda. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Sippy's Restaurants, now offering dishes such as chili in bulk bags and pouches ready for the family to heat and eat or to freeze for later. Online ordering at zippies.com or by downloading the app. On the anniversary of the Americans with Disabilities Act, we look at how the movement fought to change the world for all of us, like the ubiquitous curb cut. If you're somebody who pushes a stroller through the built environment, if you're dragging wheeled luggage behind you, if you're walking a bike, you participate in those politics, too. Join us for this week's On the Media from WNYC. This evening at 7, following The Body Show. Honolulu Civil Beats Reality Chat features a story about federal investigators resuming their corruption probe. Reporter Nick Gruby checking in from Washington, D.C. Good morning, Nick. Hi, Catherine. Thank you so much for having me on. Hey, so you've been keeping tabs on uh, Special uh, Prosecutor uh, Michael Wheat and his coming and going. Uh, that's right. Yeah, um, some of our sources back there on the island had told us that they saw Michael Wheat back at the federal 
courthouse recently uh, conducting grand jury investigations uh, after a bit of a hiatus due to, of course, the ongoing pandemic. Uh, the the courts were uh, pretty much closed and the grand jury proceedings were sort of put on hold, which caused a lot of people to wonder what uh, Michael Wheat uh, was up to. So Michael Wheat, of course, is a special prosecutor who was appointed out of the U.S. Attorney's Office in San Diego to investigate public corruption uh, out there on the island, specifically in law enforcement and uh, specifically uh, in relation to Lewis and Catherine K. Aloha, the former police chief and former city prosecutor, who were accused, charged, and convicted of framing a family member for uh, the theft of, the me- uh, of their mailbox, along with the help of some other police officers, yeah, among I, other crimes. Yeah, no, I think the last time I saw him was at that big news conference where the, they announced the indictments. That was way back when. But now he's focused on uh, a couple of other people. That's right. Now, the Kalohas and their accomplices have yet to be uh, sentenced. But what we've reported over the years is that the Kalohas and those individuals within the HPD weren't the only people who uh, Michael Wheat and his team of prosecutors had their sights set on. Uh, to uh, other people who have received target letters from the Department of Justice indicating that they are suspected of criminal activity are Honolulu Prosecuting Attorney Keith Kaneshiro and Corporation Counsel Donald Young, who is a top lawyer in Honolulu Mayor Kirk Caldwell's cabinet. And they've been laying low, uh, but uh, obviously Wheat's presence here indicates something's, something's underfoot. Well, I think it just shows that Michael Wheat has yet to give up on Hawaii and rooting out uh, the alleged corruption that he's seen there. Now, of course, with Keith Kaneshiro, uh, we do know some of the things that the grand jury has been looking at, uh, not only his relationship with Catherine K. Aloha and the dealings that they had in the prosecuting attorney's office there, but also on another uh, scenario in which Kaneshiro office helped help to buy a uh, apartment building for a domestic violence center for victims of domestic violence years ago from one of his cap top campaign donors and of course that uh, we do know after talking to some grand jury witnesses was something that federal prosecutors were interested of course the person who uh, sold the building to the city made about a million dollars profit off of that uh, particular transaction now, Donald Young, of course, is under investigation uh, for something wholly different. She is believed to be under investigation for uh, a $250,000 payout that was made to Louis Kaloha after he himself uh, received a target letter from the DOJ. Uh, it, was a, it was part of a, a severance package for uh, then-police chief Louis Kaloha that uh, Donald Young helped to Kraft, along with then-Police Commission Chairman Max Sword, who, of course, was one of the witnesses to come testify before the federal grand jury during Michael Wheat's most recent visit to the island. Right, so it'd be really interesting to see uh, what comes out of that. And I know uh, there's been uh, lots of uh, speculation about what might come out of uh, another probe involving uh, Michael Miskey. Uh, That's right. Now, Michael Miskey, of course, is a Hawaii businessman who has been recently alleged in a major indictment to be an organized crime figure in Hawaii who runs uh, an organization called the Miskey Enterprise. 
Uh, now, of course, that's according to federal prosecutors. Now, Michael Minsky's name has come up a number of times uh, in uh, the investigation into the Kealohas and into Kaneshiro's office uh, in relation to um, other witnesses who said that um, they were planning to testify before the grand jury about uh, Michael Minsky's so-called connections to law enforcement. I think one of the more famous and well-known examples is a case in which Miski was pulled over by a Honolulu police officer for uh, being on a cell phone while driving. Uh, he drove away from the scene and later called that officer and essentially threatened him, and there are recordings of this, saying uh, something along the lines of, um, I can go to the top of the food chain. You better not mess with me. Uh, now, of course, people are wondering, top of the food chain, what does that mean? The top of the HPD, the top of the prosecuting attorney's office. Um, and that is something that I think a lot of people are going to sort of be paying attention to in the coming weeks, months, and years as the Miski investigation and prosecution sort of unfold. Okay, well, we know you'll be tracking that, but thanks so much, Nick. All right, thanks a lot for having me, Catherine. You take care. All right, you too. That was reporter Nick Ruby out of D.C. with today's reality check. Visit civilbeat.org to read his story. This is The Conversation on listener-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Time now to look to the stars, where this week we get the latest details on a planned mission to Mars. Here's your Monday Stargazer. Stargazer time, our weekly look into the massive universe that surrounds our tiny, very troubled planet. And as usual, to help us navigate the information, we've got astronomer Christopher Phillips, and he's on the line right now and at our disposal. Hey, Chris, welcome back. What's in store this week? Hey, Dave. It's good to be here. So this week, stargazers, Jupiter and Saturn can be seen in the east just after 6.30 in the evening. The moon this week will be approaching its full moon phase, so it will get brighter towards week's end. And this week, we are going to learn more about another mission to Mars. Yes, we have blast-off this week of the Mars rover Perseverance as it embarks on a seven-month trip that will see it touch down in Jezero Crater, which is just north of the Martian equator. The rover is equipped with a variety of scientific instruments, including a core drill and a helicopter drone that will scout out points of significant scientific interest for the rover to study. This mission is of specific interest to astrobiologists and planetary scientists and will no doubt yield a treasure trove of discoveries during its time on the Red Planet. And so what country is doing this? Whose space program is this? This is a NASA program. Okay, wow. So another NASA mission with a helicopter drone, you said? It is indeed. This will be the first drone or unmanned aerial vehicle ever flown on another world. This aerial reconnaissance capability will increase the scope of the mission, which is to study signs of habitability on the Red Planet. By being an eye in the sky for the rover, it can direct the ground craft to areas that are especially important to scientists here on the Earth. How long does it take to get there? Well, it's going to take seven months for Mars 2020 to actually reach the Red Planet. So it's going to arrive in February and is due for touchdown on February 18th. It's really not that long when you think about it. It really isn't. 
and explain how this is going to be different in some ways than the other rovers, which are also doing a similar thing, right? Looking for signs of life, basically. Well, the other large rover there, Curiosity, was designed primarily as a geologist, and its mission was to help us build up a picture of what Mars was like in the past. This mission, Perseverance, is to act on all that previous data that was gathered and actually investigate for signs of past and present habitability. Another key aspect of this mission is to lay the foundation for the Mars Sample Return Mission, which is a vital step we have to take before sending humans to the Red Planet. And although some of these tend to go way past their expiration date, how long is this thing planned to last? Well, I think we can probably expect the same thing with Perseverance. Initially, the mission was designed to last around 687 Earth days, which is around a Martian year. But as we have seen before, like all these missions, they tend to be extended for possibly even years. And does that helicopter drone have a cool little name? Or It does. Its name is Ingenuity. <laughs> right on. Well, good luck to Ingenuity and the whole mission. And, uh, and to you, Christopher Phillips, thanks for the great report. You're welcome, Dave. And I'm Dave Lawrence. Catch you next week for Stargazer, which we keep at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for Stargazer comes from Haleakala Ranch, with a legacy of livestock, conservation, and land stewardship since 1888, working to restore, maintain, and preserve the open vistas and natural beauty of Maui. More at HaleakalaRanch.com. In today's Backyard Quiz, we asked you for the name of an American military drama television series that aired on ABC in the 2012 fall season. Now, the storyline was based on some real events of the early 1960s. The TV plot and subsequent episodes were filmed entirely on Oahu. Some of the most striking images were in the underwater sequences shot by veteran cinematographer Don King. Now, the show started Andre uh, Brower and Scott Speedman, who played the senior officers on a nuclear submarine. The plot was a kind of Latter-day version of the hit series Lost. The crew of a damaged nuclear submarine, the USS Colorado, finds refuge on a remote tropical island and struggles to get back in contact. For them, life on the island is the last resort. And that is the name of the show and the answer to today's quiz. And congratulations to Sean Aronson from Honolulu. He tells us that he worked on the show in the location department, so he got the answer today. Thanks so much for calling, Sean. How cool is that? So if you have an idea for a quiz, please send it to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Colored glasses for the long-term outlook on commercial real estate. We talked to Andy Friedlander of Colliers International earlier this year, who cautioned not to be too optimistic about a quick turnaround. He said he was more of a realist than a pessimist, and while we have yet to see the full effects of the health and economic crisis, the headlines of growing retail bankruptcies as things stretch out signal tougher times ahead. Landlords have mortgages to pay. They have no choice but to sue. They can't just say, I forgive you, especially with companies that have the ability to borrow money. 
we're getting requests from major tenants, national tenants, on small properties. I won't mention the names because it's really not public. But major tenants saying, uh, I'm not paying the rent for the next six months. And that's unacceptable. They have the ability to pay, unlike small mom and pops who run cash flow for every day. And But people are taking advantage of it even though they have the ability and they have the funds. Yeah, I think in the case of Simon Malls and Gap and Banana Republic, you know, they're just saying they never opened their doors, and so they're not paying rent. In Ala Moana, I think Banana Republic isn't opening its doors, and that's a pretty large store there. It's across the board. But, Catherine, my concern long-term is for employees. I'm worried about our people here in Hawaii and what's going to happen. I'm not sure there is an answer. And when tourism does return... How much of it will be back? Let's say that there's a vaccine developed later this year or next year. How many years before will it take for people to get vaccinated? I think it's it's 2022 before anything really turns around. Well, what are you looking for, let's say, on the commercial real estate end? The office market is a real question mark. Like you, I'm an avid reader. Only my reading is almost entirely on commercial real estate. And many companies are saying... We're happy with our employees working at home, but most employees can't work at home full time. They lose contact with the company. The company can't really hire because of culture. Uh, how, How do you run a company in the long run without interfacing every day? So I think things are going to change. People, there'll probably be uh, people working two days a week from home and the other people will work three days a week from home and there'll be switch offs. But the office space themselves will have to expand or not diminish. They'll just have to remodel for social distancing considerations. Many companies were taking less and less space and cramming more and more people in, and now they have to remodel those spaces to provide space, distance. I guess the, you know, the, the one thing you know, that is interesting is as you look at the, the class of office properties around town, you know, the ABC. And so I don't know. I mean, are there going to be nicer properties at a cheaper rate? That's what has happened in the past. Yes. The class A properties have gone taken from the B and C properties. They will uh, they'll move up with the lower rates available. Right now, many buildings on the mainland are reconsidering large office buildings because if you only want two or three people in an elevator at one time at eight o'clock in the morning, how are you moving thousands of people up and down the elevators? Yeah, so it's really rethinking the workday. That's right. So you may be coming in later or earlier in the morning to stagger work times. What about like with our malls? Because uh, the headlines across the country is you've got these malls that are just shutting down. There was one in Northern California. Just, you know, they lost their anchors and it's just not, not profitable to stay open and operate as a mall. Correct. Malls, enclosed malls have a bigger problem because people don't want to go into enclosed malls. Most most of the malls in Hawaii are open. Alamana basically is an open mall. So people will park and walk to the store they're going to and get out. And many stores today are saying, come and order and we'll deliver it out to your car, whatever it is. There was a time here in Hawaii where it's just like everywhere you looked, there was some new shopping mall coming up. But the strip malls will continue to do better when, when business returns. And you know what online shopping is doing. So I was watching CNBC the other morning. The host was interviewing 
four people and asked them, do you use Amazon? And if you do, how often? People were saying anywhere from two to five times a week they order on Amazon. And what about the situation with the with the large malls, you know, because they're owned by REITs? What do you think is going to happen, you know, if you've got your all-in-one shopping centers? Well, it's not just the shopping centers. It's the hotels that the REITs own, including the Hilton Hawaiian Village, was transferred from regular ownership into a REIT. So they don't pay taxes when they transfer any longer. They don't pay income taxes. And they say, well, we pay real property taxes, but they don't. Their tenants pay the real property taxes in CAM charges. It's passed on to the tenants. So the REITs pay virtually, the REITs pay zero taxes to us. It's a huge amount of money we're losing annually in the state of Hawaii. Yet when it came up to the legislature, the lobbyists for the REITs just took care of it and killed it. So you think that maybe now that they're going to rethink that, like the landscape has changed? I don't know. Lobbyists are very powerful, aren't they? What's in the cards, you think, for industrial properties? Industrial properties are the one area that will continue to remain strong. The industrial needs, people are supplying or bringing in supplies, and they need places to store them. So it's a very different dynamic for industrial. Didn't I just see a headline that Amazon just bought some property here on Oahu? Yes, that's that's correct. They bought a large acreage on Sand Island Access Road, Fee Simple from Servco. And the interesting thing is it does not affect Servco's automobile industry at all because it's it's only where they were basically storing vehicles, and they can store vehicles elsewhere. But the fact that it's Amazon now cementing some property here. Yes. Do you think that there's going to be a need for, for more uh, industrial, and is anyone going to be you know, building out any more um, properties? There are very large industrial facilities under construction right now, huge industrial facilities. So, yes, that is happening as we speak. What, here on Oahu or on neighbor islands? Uh, on Oahu. What about the neighbor mm-hmm. islands? Very little. Not much going on there. Again, the population is so much smaller that they don't have the same need. Most of the action will be here on Oahu. That's correct. The concern is young brothers, though, continuing to make their trips. Anything else that you think as we move into the second part of the year and the last two quarters? I think it's going to be much of what we're experiencing this quarter right now. It's going to be very slow. I don't see recovery. If, if, if the governor opened things tomorrow without any restrictions, we still would not be full. It's not going to come back anytime soon. Shopping centers on the mainland, many of the shopping centers on the mainland where they have large parking fields, they converting that to uh, drive-in theaters. There's a big company on the mainland who's doing that right now at night because those shopping centers, as you mentioned earlier, are empty. So they put up screens and you could have the drive-in theaters. People come in and you could tune it into their radio. They don't need uh, adjustments in the car anymore. So things are changing. Everybody's looking for new opportunities and people will develop them. That was Collier's International Andy Friedlander talking about the commercial landscape as we move into the second half of 2020. And that is it for the day. Tomorrow we hear about the Jones Act. What do you think about our shipping situation? Call our talkback line, 808-792-8217. Tweet us at HI Conversation or head to our Facebook page. And remember, all of our shows are archived. Find them on the conversation page at hawaiipublicradio.org. I'm Catherine Cruz. We will be back tomorrow with more of the conversation.